to the second episode of the MHA Corner, presented by Maxwell Healthcare Associates. MHA Corner focuses on trends and topics that the home health and hospice industries face on a daily basis. Enjoy listening to conversations with industry leaders and our very own consultants on their firsthand experiences. Hello and welcome to MHA Corner, our podcast here at MHA. Today's topic is talking about all about M&A, uh, mergers and acquisitions within the home health and hospice space. Uh, there's been a lot of uptick recently, and we kind of want to go as a general overview of what the past looked like, what the current state looks like, and what the future predictions are, and, and anything and everything that involves M&A. Uh, with me today, I have our CEO and chairman, Jennifer Maxwell and Tom Maxwell. You want to say hi to the folks, guys? Hello, everybody. This is Jennifer. Yeah, hi. Good morning, Tom Maxwell. And thank you guys so much for taking the time on your busy schedules to be with us today to talk about M&A. Uh, we got a list of questions here that I think the public would want to know just because of uh, the recent work that you guys have been involved with, with the many companies as well as MHA um, involved in a lot of M&A transactions recently. Uh, the first question that I'd like to ask, what was the prior state of mergers and acquisition transactions before the COVID pandemic? Yeah, I'll take that question, Hunter. It's a good one. Um, so prior to the pandemic, you were seeing a lot of um, home health agencies starting to, you know, look at PDGM, starting to look at PCRD and, and those kind of things and, and really focusing in on, um, you know, getting in this business, the home care and hospice space is getting more difficult. And so you were starting to see a lot of um, agencies that were looking at, you know, how do I, how do I start transacting my agency or, you know, it's time for me to move on and do something different because it's just getting so much harder. Um, I think the pandemic hit and, um, and you started to see, you know, people pause and they knew they, the kind of mission of home health and hospice um, was that, you know, we want to take care of patients in their homes and that's where patients want to be. Patients are scared to go into SNFs or into hospitals. And so the industry actually grew from a census perspective, but we also thought that would slow down the um, activity and it did not. So prior to, I think you saw a lot of uh, regulatory pressures that were forcing um, home care and hospice agencies to want to sell their business. During the pandemic, we even saw that grow more. Jennifer, do you have anything to add to that, to the prior state of the pandemic? No, um, Tom did a really great job outlining the pre-pandemic state, as well as the connection to PDGM and the other concerns that were coming down the pike without knowing what the overall total effect would be. And what we've noticed uh, into the pandemic and then now even further along after lockdown, uh, there's been a major uptick in the home health and hospice spaces. Would you guys like to add anything on, on that? So just from a, a pure perspective, between May 15th of 2020 and May 15th of 2021, the number of home health and hospice um, deals that happened grew by 16%. So that's during the pandemic. You're looking at a 16% growth, which which I think is a huge number. Um, the deals collectively tipped past $11.8 billion in, in uh, home care and hospice acquisitions. There was 95 hospice acquisitions. So that's kind of giving some raw numbers around that that happened during that time frame. It's a pretty big number. And why do you guys feel that that happened? Why Why during the pandemic in such a time where a lot of other companies were struggling? 
In my eyes, I think there's a, there's obviously the multiple factors. Some of the pieces that we talked about was the PDGM, but then we also have, there's other pro programs that are coming out, whether it's PRCD, which is now RCD, the demonstration projects that are were taking place, the strategic players in the space is really increasing, seeing that there is opportunity to grow and find uh, growth opportunities within that their portfolios. So you're seeing more strategics rather than just agencies rolling each other up. And then you're also seeing the opportunity for agencies to look at better technologies and so to leverage those things you're seeing a lot of them uh, combined together to increase their capacity to be able to serve more patients and it and really kind of produce that population that the population health and monitoring them across the spectrum so you're also seeing more so um, continuum of care acquisitions. So even we're seeing some private duty movement, we're seeing home health um, uptick, as well as um, hospice staying at its height that it has been for quite some time. Tom? Yeah, and I would just, yeah, I would add to that just with all the value-based purchasing that everybody's talking about. So all these different, um, you know, business models where providers, you know, home care and hospice providers are, are you know, being tapped on the shoulder and, and actually having a seat at the table with all the insurance payers. I think you're seeing the consolidation to prepare for that. If I'm one of the large payers, the last thing I want to do is go partner with 3,000 home care and hospice agencies. I want to partner with one or two or five or 10 uh, home care and hospice agencies that have coverage across the country. Um, you're, you're seeing it kind of regionalized because there's a lot of regionalized MSOs, there's regionalized um, payers, you know, California Medicaid, Texas Medicaid. And so you're seeing these providers that want to cover the whole state, right? So I want to cover the beneficiaries or you, you're looking at these regional players that have, you know, from Texas all the way to Florida up to New York and you have to have coverage across all of those. So I think the acquisitions um, that are happening are really trying to prepare um, the providers to to manage that coverage, right? And they also want to, you know, be able to grow this business. Home care and hospice is a is also the the calling of all patients that you know they don't want to die in the hospital, they don't want to die in a skilled nursing facility. I think the pandemic has really um, increased the amount of activity around this Choose Home initiative that's going on, and so you're seeing a lot more patients that I mean, if you interview them all. They'll tell you they want to, you know, die in their place with their dog and their remote control and their glass of water and and the comforts of their home and the safety of their home. And so we're spreading out um, the skills that nurses are, are and therapists and aides and all those that are what they're doing in the home is growing. Right. The number of, of procedures that we can be doing in the home or IVs or infusion or those kind of things are being done in the home. That's where patients want to be. They feel safe there. And so, you know, I think the pandemic has actually helped accelerate the the choose home kind of model. And that's also being followed by all the, you know, big players that the publicly traded private equity backed or even the not for profits. We're seeing a lot of not for profits that are consolidating, too. So, you know, I think that's that's what's causing the consolidation. And then on top of that, let's just let's hit a duck. What a duck is, is the multiples are unbelievable in hospice right now. It's the highest I've ever seen them. Um, they're double-digit multiples, and and so I think you're you're continuing to see hospices are saying if I sell now, I'm, we're never going to get back to this point of multiples. So the value of a hospice is is growing quite a bit as well. 
And, I, and one other thing to add to that too, I would also say that there is, um, due to the new administration that is in place, there's a lot of concern over the capital gains taxes. So you're seeing a lot of movement pre-2022 to avoid those tax hikes and those hits from the, their sale or their acquisitions. So that's why I think there's a lot of hurry up and get it done before we're going to see some financial windfalls from the new administration that's coming out. That's very interesting, you guys. Very insightful as well. So, you know, just to kind of expand on that, moving into my next question, actually. Um, so this one's probably more for Tom, just because of, uh, you know, you sit on the board of many advisories and you're in on a lot of these decision makings when this comes to expanding. So when we talk about, um, you know, the, the types of acquisitions that are taking place, are we seeing like home health agencies uh, acquiring hospices or vice versa to try to consolidate a continuum of care? Yeah, so it's a great question, Hunter. And, and for many years, you know, a home health player was a home health player and a hospice player was a pure hospice play. Um, we we invested in, Jennifer and I invested in in, in a few hospices that are, are now looking at home care and vice versa. So I, I think people are starting to see that, you know, I, the customer, the patient wants to wants to be cared for by, um, you know, the large agency or an agency that provides all services. So I'm on home health for, you know, a couple episodes I go off. And then when it's time for hospice, you know, I have comfort with, you know, my provider that cared for me before. And so I want to stay with that provider. And, and I like that provider. They, they you know, did me right in the private duty and then they went to home health and hospice. And so we're seeing that as a trend. Um, we've also invested in a few companies that, that, you know, look at home health patients and predict the 90 day mortality rate and, and can put the push those patients to hospice. The real purpose of that is that the hospice patient deserves that benefit, right? It's a benefit that Medicare covers so that meds and durable medical equipment and supplies and care is provided to the hospice patient. So you're seeing more and more trends around, I'm not only a sole one service line provider, the more the agencies are doing all service lines. Um, if you look at all the publicly traded guys that are that are in the industry, you know, they cover, you know, not only home care, but home health and hospice and, and infusion and, and, you know, a lot of them even have facilities as well, uh, whether it's inpatient facilities or SNFs or ALPS or ERFs. And so, I, you know, I think the trend is you're not just a pure play home health or a pure play hospice provider anymore. You're doing all services. Jennifer, anything to add to that? I think Tom did a really great job with that. I also think, you know, the pure play, pure hospice, and now the combination of that, they're also going upstream to private duty. And then also the gap in between with potential palliative care. So I think you're going to see some more interesting service lines pop up as we get through some of the value-based purchasing pieces and the PDGM year two, uh, the issues with sequestration and how that's going to play out. So I think we're going to see some interesting con full continuum of care as well as bridging even into the acute care setting. The thing I would add to that, Hunter, it's interesting that um, you know Jen, Jen makes a good point there. Under value-based payment or under value-based care, our ultimate goal is to put the patient in the least expensive, most desired scenario. And so the goal of value-based care is a convener, let's call it that, it's for what it is, it gets paid a certain amount of money and their job is to keep that patient out of the hospital. That's the patient's desire. That's the insurance's desire. And so that's why I think you're really seeing home care, home health, 
palliative care and hospice is what do we need to do for that patient in order to keep them out of the hospital? And and that's the last place a patient wants to go. It's the last place anybody wants to go is to the ER, to the hospital. And so you're seeing these models be built, but you're also seeing tools and agencies put together tools that are allowing them to better manage those patients, whether it's you know, using telehealth and telemonitoring, whether it's doing more nursing visits or more aid visits or creating other programs like a palliative care program or those kind of things that are really focused on how do we treat Nana or Papa the best we can and keep them out of the hospital. That's our ultimate goal, but also allow them to age in place. So, and technology plays a big part in that, right? So I guess my next question uh, to Jen, um, you know, we're Obviously, we're working on our own service lines on MHA and how we can help um, in M&A transactions or acquisitions where we can unify the EMRs um, or, you know, supply them with uh, referrals to vendors that can help um, in the technology space. So how big of a role does technology play in these M&A transactions? That's a great question, Hunter. It's uh, very significant, especially the ones that we have been doing over the last probably three quarters of, you know, uh, and fourth quarter of 2020, as it relates to multiple organizations coming together. So one organization doing multiple acquisitions at one time, trying to strategically get them into a single platform to be able to see the uh, the care model be able to be played out quicker and have better productivity right out of the gate versus a lot of times when you're doing an EMR transition, it can be up to 90 days before you get up to full productivity within the organization. Now that potentially can be from um, mostly from a financial standpoint, but second of all, it can also be from a care standpoint. And so we wanna make sure that plans of care, visit schedules, scheduling, billing, all of those things are as automated and as optimized as possible, as quickly as possible. So we've invested with other technology vendors such as those that are predictive analytic analytics using artificial intelligence and neural net learning to help us predict when a patient is gonna need to transition to a different level of care or off of a care, level of care of service. Also in the transition model, for technology, how do we get those patients transitioned to the new technology, that new platform as quickly as possible so that the clinicians can be out in the field working at the top of their license, which is actually caring for the patient rather than documenting about the patient. We want them to have that technology be at their fingertips versus a, a, a barrier to providing that higher level of care. And Tom, I know that you we work very closely, well, both of you work very closely with Metalogics and their suite of products. Um, you know, predictive modeling, um, as mentioned earlier, how big of a role is that playing in some of these M&A transactions? Are we seeing um, a lot of these, you know, like, like Metalogics, for example, are they in the conversation at the start of these M&A transactions, or is it usually towards the end when they know that they're settled, they've implemented what they needed, um, now they're ready to optimize their technology. Yeah, so we're seeing um, a couple points there. So we're seeing those that are being acquired, technology plays a big piece in evaluation numbers. Call it what it is, um, you know, home care base is by far the, the largest and most prolific EMR in the industry. And so they're, I would say they're the most sought after agencies that are used home care base are the most sought after. Um, today was announced Brookdale got bought by uh, LHC. They're a home care based customer. 
St. Croix got bought by HIG, they're a home care based customer. Um, you know, Mission got bought by uh, the Bistry Group, they're a home care based customer. So I, I think if you start looking at the number of acquisitions that are happening, the evaluations of those acquisitions, home care based provides that. I'm, I'm biased to it because I was the COO there for many years, but but it does create a compliance um, organization that has been vetted through, you know, all the largest players in the United States. And so I, I think if you're on home care home base, you're going to see, um, you know, there's a, an advantage to doing that. The other side of it to answer your mentalogics question is those that are using predictive analytics and um, machine learning to, uh, especially on the hospice side. Now we're seeing that with Muse. So, you know, there's all this noise in the industry about, visits in the last seven days and clinicians aren't providing enough care and and you know there's um, a bunch of letters that have been written and those kind of things we don't believe that is true we don't believe that if you're not for profit for profit publicly traded it matters it's all about the caregiver that's in the home taking care of nana and, and all the details that she knows about nana and so if if the machine learning tools are predicting that nana's got a you know, high mortality rate or high risk for mortality rate, then how do we increase the number of visits that we're doing? How do we provide different care to Nana? How do we order the right number of pharmaceutical drugs? How do we get the right number of supplies and reduce costs in the industry? It makes no sense to order, you know, 30 days worth of diapers for a patient that's, you know, being predicted to pass away in the next seven days. Why do we waste money on that? And so there's a whole lot of things that, that, are, that are happening in the industry that use the Metalogics tools. But then also, how do we predict the right amount of care that's needed for Nana under the home care model? How do we look at Nana and say, is Nana declining or getting better? How do we manage the research versus discharge decision? Ultimately, you admitted that patient under home care to make them better. And why would we discharge them if they're not going to be better and end up back in the ER? And so without these kinds of tools that are being built in the industry, then you don't, you know, you're there's clinicians in the field that understand patients very well they've been on home care they've been on hospice for many many years but why not add another tool to their tool bag that says these are the reasons why we think that nana needs to be um uh, reasserted or discharged and so helping make those clinical decisions is, is super important to the industry and so I, I you know i think those that adopt technology are that are like a metalogics you know care bridge touch nurture products are going to provide better care to their patients you know, that really does lead me into my next question. Um, and, you know, either one of you can take this one. But, um, you know, going along with technology and making making more efficient processes, especially during these ultimately stressful times of any acquisition or merger, we're facing a nationwide workforce shortage due to the pandemic. You know, we, we hear a lot about how staff, especially uh, clinicians, get fed up with inefficient processes, bad technology that isn't kept up with. And so they leave and go to a different place. Uh, do we see that this could help that? Or is there other things in play that uh, you guys predict for the future in terms of the workforce shortage? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you, if you look at hospice first, so hospice is how do we care for Nana the most appropriately while Nana's at home? And there's lots of ways that we do that. Um, we can send you know nurses, chaplains, social workers, um, aides, all those kind of things to the home. But as you look at the nationwide work, workforce shortages, you know, I think um, tools uh, that are remote patient monitoring are really good. Uh, virtual visits are really good. So Nana's having a, you know, a crisis or Nana's sister comes in 
and says Nana's has, you know, shortness of breath, Nana's having a high pulse rate, Nana's having whatever that condition is, being able to do a virtual visit, click one button, dial into Nana's home, be able to talk to Nana, help Nana, send a nurse out if we need to, um, a physician, even a, or a, a nurse practitioner, are, are all areas that I think you're going to see, and especially under the value-based care, how do we keep Nana out of the hospital? If we can react to Nana when she needs us, and do it quickly and timely, then I think we're always going to keep her from dialing 911, right? The number one reason that that lots of people dial 911 is they're lonely, they're bored, and, and there's a there's a whole social determinants, you know, um, aspect of this around, you know, loneliness, uh, you know, a failure to thrive, those kind of things. So I think there's a big play there. I also think that you know tools like Metalogics, tools like Muse, tools like uh, GramPad is another one we've been looking at are really going to help with these uh, nationwide workforce shortages. The worst thing that a nurse can do is is have to drive a long ways to go see a patient when they could just you know do a virtual visit and click right into them. Um, a couple of different scenarios have happened recently that that I think I think were amazing. Um, if you remember back a few months ago, Hunter, the, there was a gas or, uh, shortage in uh, South Carolina. They had no gas, zero, um, there was no tanks. And so the clinicians actually looked at, you know, how sick their patients were and how likely they were to pass away in the next seven to 10 days. And they prioritized those patients to get seen. And the ones that weren't likely to pass away in the next seven to 10 days, they did virtual visits on them. And so I, I think that's a, a, a real, you know, um, a benefit to the technologies. The same thing happened in the hurricane. We had multiple customers call us up and ask us to, to help them prioritize their patients during the, the recent hurricane that hit Louisiana. I mean, again, we're in a crisis situation. Who do we need to care for next? We're, we're, this is war triage, right? You're in a disaster triage scenario. Who do I need to care for now? And without having the tools that we've created in the industry, you run into a scenario where you're going to see anybody or you're having to read the whole entire medical record in order to figure out which patient needs me right now. Or if you have, or which patient needs to be, you know, medevaced out, or which patient needs to be, you know, taken to a facility, or uh, or which patients can stay in their own home. And so, you know, I think that's a big piece of the the workforce shortage. The last thing I would say is, you know, how do we grow more nurses? And so Jennifer could talk about that a little bit here in a sec, but I but I think it's going to be super important to make sure that your documentation, your EMR. Um, and and all the other tools that you have around them are are very well. Um, the nurses are very well educated in that so that they can one speed their documentation so they're not spending all their time doing documentation but then two also have good quality defensible documentation so that when you get an audit or when you get a tpe or whatever they're they're calling the recent audits your staff have the tools in their hands to make sure that they've done a good job of documenting that patient and the care that they're providing Jennifer, why don't you talk a little bit about the how we're growing nurses so yeah so one of the things that we've noticed um as well is that most and all education programs for nurses, whether it's LPNs, LVNs, BSNs, RNs, MSNs, et cetera, focus really on that brick and mortar clinical acute setting versus a home health or a hospice setting. So we've had some conversations with some West Coast colleges that are more tailoring to that education in a box that makes sense or customizing that education to meet the need of a future employer. And so we're really trying to get creative and get outside the box of that and provide assistance upfront with exposure to home health and hospice. And to Tom's point, documentation 
at the bedside, doing those things in congruence with being able to care for that patient. Also looking at um, our technologies just outside the box in general, to Tom's point about leveraging some of our technology during the pan, like whether it was the pandemic to get PPE, whether it was the hurricane, just recent hurricane, whether it was the gas shortage, really taking a, taking a look at technology outside of the day-to-day -day is really what is the creative piece of how we can solve a lot of these problems that are coming up that we haven't typically seen because we're kind of in this this new era. And so as we look at training and onboarding of these clinicians, how can we get them more exposure up front, get them to have better training and support and become productive quicker, faster, better, and also engaging with the new Gen Xers, millennials, and those that really want to look at that a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit, having focus, purpose, and mission for what they do in life, and being able to bring the, the home health or the hospice space to that they are that in that control, they can actually help a life a day, a time, a visit, and really have that prideful moment is something that we're really trying to work with other organizations, both home health and hospice agencies, as well as colleges across the nation, so that we can backfill all of these positions that'll be happening. And yeah, no, that's a great point, Jen. So thank you for adding that in. Yeah, on top of the services that we offer at MHA, we are involving ourselves in that kind of like that preemptive trying to backfill those roles um, through other service lines. And Tom, uh, since I have you here, if you want to just talk us through real quick, um, you know, what what is MHA's role in these M&A transactions? Yeah, it's a it, it's a good question. So in a lot of the M&A transactions, we're, we're buy side, sell side advisors. So most of the time we're on the buyer's side and they, they call us to come in and do, you know, operational assessments, technology assessments, clinical assessments, um, compliance assessments. So we're doing a deep dive into, one, the data room that everybody creates, and then two, into their EMR, whether it's you know, uh, home care, home base, or WellSky, or NetSmart, or McKesson, or um, there's a few left on Cerner, um, uh, Brighttree, all these different EMRs are out there. And and so we have, you know, Maxwell um, has 120 consultants that can help in this space. So not only are we doing, you know, the operational assessment, when we write an operational assessment, we're talking about what are the things you need to look at and how are you gonna take what we find in this operational assessment and this due diligence documents, and then how do you implement those into your organization as you buy them? So it's it's more than just creating a document that says, hey, here's all the problems or all the reasons why you shouldn't buy this agency. It's here's the areas that we think that you need to focus your attention on, and here's how Maxwell can help you implement those. So most of the time when we get um, a due diligence job that, that somebody's engaged us, they also engage us to do the implementation side of the product as well. So how do we move that customer from WellSky onto home care home base? Do we, do we use a company called E5 to help with uh, the uh, patient transitions off of one EMR to another? And then do we turn right around and do education for the new uh, acquired entity to train their nurses uh, you know, to be proficient in, in whatever EMR they're on? So we spend most of our time doing that. A couple of the other questions that come up, you know, what are they looking for? Um, you know, buyers are definitely looking for clean, compliant agencies, 
we know not every agency is compliant, but is, is there fraud being committed? Is there, are there things that they're just completely missing? Um, you know, where are these synergies going to be? So is the synergies in technology or the synergies in PDGM or the synergies in, you know, hospice care? What tools are they using? Um, a lot of times we see synergies in, you know, payroll systems and accounting systems and EMRs as well. Um, and so that's where we spend most of our time, um, you know, looking at the technology and the uh, and how the operation is working, but also in policy and procedures and staffing. You know, maybe um, one organization is overstaffed in the back office, depending on their EMR, because they're less efficient. You know, can we automate those things? And so we spend a lot of time deep diving into into the organization and we produce a very robust book. I call it a book because it's more than 40 pages. Anytime it's more than 40 pages, it's a book. But that book also includes all the recommendations that you need to do and things you need to watch out for, as well as, you know, culturally areas that we need to improve on or, or focus our attention on. Jennifer, anything to add to that? I know that we are working on a new service line uh, that we call the PUP, um, the uh, Provider Unification Plan. Uh, do you want to kind of dive into that or just kind of like the new service lines that we're developing for these M&A transactions? Yeah, so um, to uh, Tom's point about kind of looking at taking those deep dives and looking at everything, one of the pieces that we like to do prior to uh, an M&A is really look at where is current state of the selling organization, business operations, all of those pieces, and then where is the current state of the buyer side of that agency and looking at their business operations, and then how do we map them in as appropriately as possible without too much disruption to the organization as a whole. So a lot of times you'll see things as simple as um, name changes for different positions within the organization that can cause a lot of confusion if we don't map out what is the daily duties of this person over here and now what how are they going to map to the new person same way as to how do we take an intake versus how are we going to take an intake on the new system with the the combined because there are some policies and procedures that we do really have to address such as IDT timeframes, that can really shift an organization. If we've got one that does it on day, you know, gets all the documentation out on day 14, but then the other organization does it on day 15, that can really create some um, mismatch synergies as it relates to how are we communicating, how are we pulling the staff together, how are we billing, et cetera, and how are we care planning as a whole. So we like to really map out where each of the organizations are, how do we overlay them into current state, and then what are the opportunities based on the positives and um, efficiencies from each of the organizations and implement them in the final provider unification plan on whatever EMR that is that they choose and whatever other vendors or technology that they're gonna assimilate with their technology. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you know, we even though we don't directly impact patient care, uh, we do impact the way it's delivered uh, with what we can do for these organizations. And these service lines ultimately make it easier for these agencies to focus on providing the care that they want to provide to their patients. All the while, we take the lift um, and the stressors away from them uh, with these service lines. So thank you for adding that in there. Um, and we're kind of running on time here, but I just want to wrap it up. Tom, I'll ask you first, um, what are your predictions for the future of 2022 in terms of mergers and acquisitions? 
Yeah, so, you know, there's lots of regulatory changes that are coming. Um, we have the HCI for hospice, which is the hospice care index, which is 10 factors that are going to go into, in fact, um, you know, the amount of care you give, how often you care, live discharges, long length of stay and short length of stay. So please pay attention to that. I think um, as you do that, you're going to see the more mergers and acquisitions happen in 2022. I think the care dollars and the PPE loans build out a lot of the home care and hospice agencies that were not profitable or, or that we're thinking about, you know, selling or, or um, you know, being acquired in 2021 and 2020. I think those dollars run out. Um, I think the workforce challenges that people are having with hiring um, good clinicians to work in their business is going to force a lot of the of the less profitable organizations to think twice about, is it still worth it to be in this business? I think when you look at the the larger, you know, multi-site scalable um, synergistic um, organizations that are the acquirers. And so my belief is that we're gonna see more in 2022. Um, valuations are still great. Um, so um, you'll see that depending on what happens with uh, the administration around capital gains taxes, I think, um, there's some challenges in that. Um, you know, if you sell your business, if capital gains grows by 10% and you sell your business for, you know, 5%, you're losing money. And so I, I think you're going to see people rush to, to be acquired. Um, we're already seeing that through all the bankers. So we, we take a lot of calls from bankers on a weekly basis around helping do acquisitions. And there are a lot of people that are teeing up um, their businesses to be acquired. So I, I, you know, I think the future is bright. I think it's super bright for home care and hospice. I'm super excited about it because you know there's more patients that want to you know age in place is the term we like to use and if they want to age in place then they're going to need help and whether it's social determinants home care home health hospice palliative care you know they want to be in their home they don't want to get in their car and drive to a hospital they don't want to be exposed to the pandemic they want to be around their family their pets those kind of things that we talked about earlier so um, you know, I think uh, M&A activity is going to continue to increase. We're seeing it increasing in third and fourth quarter this year. I think first and second quarter next year, it'll still be, um, you know, booming as well. And so th that's all exciting. Um, but, you know, there's also lots of challenges and there's lots of headwinds um, that are headed at us too from a regulatory perspective. And so, you know, we've kind of had a survey reprieve. Um, lots of the surveyors aren't surveying as often as they were because of the pandemic. There's nobody in the offices. It's amazing that the workforce has been able to tolerate this work from home mentality. I think you're going to see that, you know, agencies don't have to have as big as office space and those kind of things. More people can work from home. We're excited about that, too, because of the, some of the things that we're doing around, you know, implementations and optimizations. We can do that remotely as well. So, yeah, I think I think the future is really bright and super excited about where we're, where we're headed. Awesome. And Jennifer, do you have anything to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I 110% agree with everything that Tom has said in there. I think there's two two points that I I would like to close off with. One, I also the with the future of home health and hospice being bright. I also think that there is great opportunity for more technology advancement due to the fact that those seniors that are aging in place and um, in their homes are more technology savvy than the ones we had 10 years ago. And it's gonna increase in that technology ability more and more, which will create opportunity for other technologies to come into the home that can really help support that care model that we're talking about. And then lastly, I think there's like four different um, components or words that I would like to leave people with is 
those that are going to be successful and continue to grow into this next phase of M&A, et cetera. It's those that are flexible, those that are mobile, those that can pivot, and those that can scale. Those are the ones that are going to be make it. Very insightful. Well, uh, I just want to thank you guys so much for your time. Uh, I know that you guys have very busy schedules, so thank you for fitting me in. Uh, thank you to all the viewers that are listening in. If you guys want to learn more about how MHA can help with your M&A uh, and due diligence processes, feel free to check out our website at www.maxwellhca.com. You can check out all of our full list of services, um, and then you can reach out to our sales guy, Matt Davis. Um, his email will be in the description. All right. Well, thank you guys so much, and have a good rest of your day. Thank you. See you. Bye, guys. Tune in next time to learn about the latest industry topics and trends from experts in the home health and hospice industries.